minimalists. <laughs> All right, y'all, and we're back with Annika Harris, the author of Conscious. We have some questions, a bunch of questions. But first, uh, Annika, you, you were saying that um, there was probably something else for us to, to talk about with respect to, uh, there's an ethical point with respect to obsession. Um, yeah, it wasn't really an ethical point. I just, my, my, I feel like I have an ethical obligation to- For your own to... conscience, you gotta get this off your chest. <laughs> yeah. All right, give it to us. Um, <laughs> so in talking about things like OCD and, and severe anxiety, um, I, I was kind of getting to this place, but I never really made the point I think is important, which is because we stress so much in today's culture, and the three of us do this because we are all meditators, um, how powerful those types of interventions can be. I, mean, mm. I shouldn't call meditation an intervention, but um, the thought, the thought, word. the thought based, yeah. you know, therapy and getting changing the way you think about things, the way you frame things, and then also doing things with your mind like meditation. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's important to stress that when there is a physical basis, so I, I think oftentimes, maybe probably more often than not, it's our own thinking and kind of the cultural thinking around us that mm -hmm. can get us depressed and anxious. And um, I think always mindfulness, in almost every case, um, can help even the most severe cases. But when there's something happening, so if you know someone's in the midst of a panic attack, there's something happening at a neurological level, yeah. which you meditation would likely help and does. I mean, it's, it's something I've had an experience of, and I've seen other people, you know, ha get some relief from meditation or some other technique in the moment. Um, but also giving them a Valium, <laughs> 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 um, obviously that changes. M much more massively what their experience is. And so if you're, mm -hmm. if you're actually meditating through that and you took a medication to help, and I'm not, I'm not condoning Valium for, for, right, um, for panic attacks <laughs> in general, but to understand, um, and an area where I, I've talked to a lot of women about is um, uh, postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. And that's a very specific case um, where medication can make all the difference in the world yeah. where yes if you're meditating and going to therapy and doing all of that that will be helpful but there are t certainly cases where since we're always talking about the physical state of the brain where something physical will actually be much more effective and get you out of your pain right. yeah and, and um, i think there are there are other i, I like the word intervention uh, for even things like exercise like mm. moving your body and it doesn't have to be something extreme it can be you can get out there and start cycling and when you get the blood moving quite quite frequently the what we mistake for depression can be sadness and mm -hmm. and or melancholy and and we conflate all of these different these different terms but sometimes just changing your state changing your physiology yeah. just getting out in the sun um, uh, or changing your diet, you know, removing the processed foods or junk foods or sugar or things that, that cause a state of anxiety. These are all sort of micro interventions in a way mm -hmm. that, uh, can change, um, it can change the brain for sure. I mean, yeah. you, 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 you know this better than anyone, like w w what we eat or what we do with our body our body and our brain are not standing in separate quarters of the room, right? right. It's part of the body. Yeah. And when we, change, when we change what we put into it or what we do with it, that will often change what's going on in the brain. Yeah. Well, we're gonna talk about the mysteries of the mind because there are so many that your book brought forward. <laughs> the first question I thought of after I read the book was, 
what is unconsciousness? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I, in, in, in my, uh, uh, the apartment complex we live in, there's a sauna there, and it said it, it warns that like if you stay in here for you know, beyond 30 minutes, it might cause unconsciousness. Yeah. And and then I'm thinking like, well, there are, there are states of living that are also. Um, unconscious states whether it's uh i think in the book you talk about deep sleep and Mm -hmm. or someone who's in a coma yeah or or under anesthesia right Mm -hmm. or then of course there's like the locked in syndrome where you can be under you can be in a coma under anesthesia and and still experience and you have a full conscious experience almost that's anesthesia awareness that's the one condition is anesthesia awareness uh locked in syndrome is a specific um syndrome in which you've had some kind of brain um, damage, injury uh-huh. um, due to a stroke or, or something like that, mm-hmm. where you become completely paralyzed, but your conscious experience is as full and intact as it was before you became paralyzed. Okay. Um, so that's a state where someone looks like they're in a coma, where you, there's no outward signs of consciousness, but which we now know people are hearing, seeing, thinking they're having, they're, they're as full a conscious experience as they've ever had. They're just completely incapable of um moving and communicating i forget the gentleman's name who had a stroke but he was it his with his eye or with his finger his eye uh, his eyelid his um, eyelid jean, jean dominique bobby wrote an entire book yes for by all blanking it's yeah called by blanking. the diving bell and the butterfly and it's beautiful they yeah. turned it into a film actually oh too. man i gotta um, check that out yeah it's i have that book on my reading list now it's it sounds really interesting so um, what is so, unconsciousness <laughs> then i mean because yeah. it, and we'll start bringing out terms like panpsychism and things like that. If every, if all matter has conscious, then there is no such thing as unconsciousness. Yes, well, so I think hmm. I, I, I like to distinguish between two terms, unconscious and non-conscious. Ooh. So non-conscious would be material that we expect, assuming that panpsych- some version of panpsychism is not true and that consciousness arises out of brains and nervous systems. Mm-hmm. Um, matter, all of the other matter in the universe that we see, the stars and tables and you know all, all the the atoms in the universe are non-conscious uh-huh. and that implies that there was no consciousness to begin with there was no consciousness lost there's no other part you know it's not like part of the sun is conscious and the other part is unconscious so unconscious is is more referring to a system that entails consciousness that either lost it or some part of it has it the other part doesn't not and non-conscious is what we imagine most of the matter in the universe to be is just not entailing consciousness at all. Um, So unconscious um, is when the, the contents of consciousness that we are normally experience, that we normally experience are not there or any, any of the parts of the experience of my body and brain that I, I am not aware of right now, right? So there are all kinds of processing, my heart's mm. beating, my my stomach's digesting, all these things are happening. They're completely outside of my consciousness, even though they're part of my body. Mm-hmm. Um, so we usually talk about those as being non uh, unconscious processes. Right. And right. they're unconscious processes of the brain that are much closer to the types of things we are conscious of, which is where it gets really interesting and weird. Um, because decision-making processes and thoughts and all types of things that are a lot like the types of thoughts and intentions we have in our consciousness, a lot of that processing takes place um, unconsciously. Now, so when I'm sleeping and, and I uh, sort of oscillate between various degrees of like REM sleep and, and, and deep sleep, deep sleep would be unconscious, 
REM sleep would be consciousness, but yeah. dreaming, right? So yes. dreaming is consciousness. Um, it's nonsensical most of the time. Right. Uh, and it no, but it's absolutely an experience of being conscious. Right, right. Mm. It just doesn't require, you know, it's, it's not, it's based in, I guess, some reality, but, but very little reality. Yes. And um, <laughs> they, they can get kind of strange sometimes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, with, uh, it, you know, it, it, things that don't seem strange at all what, while you're sleeping you wake up and you're like you know how was i you're walking <laughs> on my hands and yeah, right. whatever. like why was my brain processing that thought that way or yeah yeah and yeah. i often wonder like how did i even how did i even think of that why <laughs> am i dreaming these things yeah. so, so so we talked earlier about um what it's like to be some conscious if consciousness is what it's like to be something mm-hmm. and i think this is where our intuitions might differ a bit. Mm. Um, I can actually, I guess, somewhat imagine. Let, let's assume panpsychism isn't real, mm-hmm. but but I can imagine what it might be like to be a plant. Because as you talk mm-hmm. about in the book, like plants have memories, for lack of a mm-hmm. of a better. Term. Yeah, no, it's incredible the amount of processing that takes place in a plant that I didn't actually know the extent of until I did this research for my book. Um, you know, down to the level of DNA, um, mm. but the way signals um, get propagated, um, changes in cells creating electrical signals, very similar to what happens in our brains, but they sense their environment. They sense light and dark, they mm-hmm. sense touch, they sense sound, um, and they change their behavior based on their environment, um, depending on the plant in more or less sophisticated and amazing ways. Um, so yes, it's, it's interesting, because I brought plant behavior up in my book, um, not because I think plants are conscious, but because I was specifically talking about behavior and whether or not we can use behavior as direct evidence of consciousness. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think one intuition pushing um, kind of category of of information is in plant behavior, and in some ca- in many cases, it's so similar that it would be it makes it hard for us to use the behaviors we would normally use coming out of human beings to say, yes, consciousness is there because we assume plants are not conscious. So mm-hmm. so my point in the book, even though I, I agree with you, it actually makes you wonder. <laughs> right, yeah. It, it makes definitely me- makes you wonder. But my point in the book was that because we assume they're not conscious and they have all these complex behaviors, in many ways that we can relate to behaviors we have that we're conscious of, mm. are we sure that these behaviors necessarily entail consciousness? Yeah, like the uh, the Venus flytrap was probably mm-hmm. the most amazing yeah. example of how, yeah. yeah, it can tell the difference between a fly landing on it or whether it's getting rained on. And yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible. In fact, I never thought about plants being conscious, but like, yeah, you totally helped me Took, took me down a path where I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Are plants conscious? Yeah. Are my plants watching me right now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think even if they are, which I actually think is a real possibility, but if they are, again, it's it's this, this distinction between consciousness and complex thought. Right. So mm-hmm. um, they're not doing anything that we're doing because they're not people, they're plants. And so whatever their experience is, it would be so different from our experience mm. that we can't even fathom it. And it can't, I can't. I don't know any reason why they'd be having thoughts, <laughs> <laughs> right. um, or intentions, or anything like the complex um, experiences that we have. Yeah. The initial title of the book was was it Lights On? It was. Okay. It, yeah. And, and the reason I asked that is it doesn't seem that after reading your book it, was, it gave me the first the first time I ever thought that consciousness isn't binary. 
Mm. Meaning, like, mm -hmm. it isn't just lights on or lights off. Mm. It's it's yeah. more like, um, well, the lights in here there there's a dimmer, and so you can you can you know, and, and so it made me ask questions like, yeah. um, am when consciousness appears, like, is my six-year-old less conscious than me? Mm. Um, mm. Are it, or, or um, are psychopaths less conscious mm. than uh, people who are empaths? Maybe. Yeah. Um, uh, what What else? What else? Um, oh, uh, schizophrenics. Mm. Um, my father was schizophrenic, mm. um, and one of my brothers was as well, and uh, they had elaborate relationships i mean that's consciousness with people who didn't like yeah. exist in the real world yeah. and that's a type of consciousness um but it it seems to me like like there is almost like i don't know different stages of consciousness um yeah i get asked this question a lot and i i think about it slightly differently so um i don't think there are different levels of consciousness i do th see it as as binary although there's there's absolutely um, more or less content that can be had. Um, so if you think of a super simple creature like a worm, and we don't know if worms are conscious, but we can imagine that they are, mm -hmm. um, the experience they're having, as you're talking about, is not only very different, but much, much, much more simple. Like what arises in that experience of consciousness is maybe, you know, one or two, you can imagine like pressure or heat or some very vague right. sense of experience. Um, that experience could be just as bright and alive for them as as our experiences are. It's just we have much, much, much more content um, and more complexity to what we're experiencing. But I think um, if no version of panpsychism is correct, right, and consciousness comes in at some point, um, there's there's definitely this gradation of how much um, complexity there is in any given conscious experience. But if it does, in fact, arise at some point, if it's not something that's fundamental to matter itself, um, then whatever that minimal beginning point is, right there is where you have the binary, right? There's 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 mm. non-conscious material in the universe. And then at some point, that non-conscious material gets configured in such a way that the lights come on, mm -hmm. that there's experience there. However minimal that is, it's still going from nothing to something. It's and it's interesting because so, like when you th like when you think about a living organism, the definition is ha it has to have one living cell. So it's like looking at consciousness, like what is that? Yeah, where is that lights on point basically? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and even with the, like, with the dimmer switch, there is even that becomes binary. It is either on right, or off. There's all. light or there isn't light. Right. Yes. And then there are gradations, as you how said, or gradients of of like how much light could be, could be washed over with light. I think about my mother when when she was dying. Um, she had lung cancer, which eventually uh, metastasized to her brain. So I guess mm -hmm. technically she died of, of brain cancer. Yeah. Um, but there, was, I remember the day before she died, talking to her, like the the lights were still very much on. Yeah. Um, but not actually, they weren't as on as they were a year prior. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. She had lost a lot of short-term memory, which actually made for some really fun games. <laughs> you just kept uh, telling her the same jokes over and over it, again. It was actually, it, it, <laughs> it lightened up a really like upsetting situation because yeah. the same joke over and over was funny to her. Yeah. Um, you get her every time on it. Every time. <laughs> <laughs> no, there are many ways in which memory just haunts us and makes us yeah. less happy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but but it seemed to me like her consciousness was slowly you know dimming in, mm -hmm. in a way but it was obviously still there and until it wasn't mm -hmm. and uh you know I, I i see that and um 
you know, I don't, I don't really know what to make of it. Uh, yeah. Again, we don't know about, you know, if panpsychism is true, then the consciousness is still there somehow. Mm. Yeah, well, if, if, if panpsychism is true, then consciousness is present in all. It's, it's just another property of matter. It's an mm-hmm. intrinsic property of matter, like all of the Gravity. physical properties. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, but that doesn't mean, and it's another, sometimes it's panpsychism gets misinterpreted this way. It doesn't mean that your mother, when she had a fully, you know, functional, healthy brain, um, that that experience in her consciousness exists somewhere else now. Right. Um, Mm. I mean, we imagine that that would still be dependent on the physics of things. Right. The the experience itself is is separate from the consciousness. Um, Okay, let's talk about... um, how does our environment affect consciousness? Um, I'm thinking about, we've already talked about schizophrenics today, so why not bring this up? Uh, Tanya Lorman at Stanford, she, she, she has, I guess, done some studies or, or, or some research on um, how schizophrenics in different countries experience radically different voices in their head oh interesting so so like in a uh very type a culture like america it's like you're not good enough you Mm -hmm. should kill yourself but in government's watching you right those birds have cameras in their eyes (laughs) yeah but but in india it's like today would be a nice day for you to do the dishes (laughs) (laughs) wow uh interesting and so i'm wondering like i mean that's obviously a different experience of consciousness but it seems like it's heavily influenced by our environment. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're speaking English right now because of our our environment, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, and it's not that we were born with English speaking brains. That's that's right. our environment. Um, so yeah, I mean that actually that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't heard that, and it's incredibly interesting. But it it makes sense. I mean, whatever is happening in your brain is because of you know all of the genetics and development that got it to grow the way it grew mm-hmm. and then all of this interaction with the world yeah and i mean that's why people can become traumatized by experiences they have and i mean the the experiences are constantly changing the state of the brain mm. yeah. yeah yeah well and and i think that leads us into free will ryan and i have the conversations around mm. free will i'm only going to have this conversation because i choose to have this conversation <laughs> <laughs> so which of which of you believes you have it and which of you doesn't oh, are you I'm both like, on the same I think I'm 50-50 on it like I do understand and I'll let you expound a bit more because I really can't speak to how free will doesn't exist but when I hear people like you talk about free will not existing I totally understand the, the perspective it makes sense it does yeah. make sense yeah right. um, so yeah I'm like in the 50-50 camp I'm on the fence still I mean I mm-hmm. I do understand so let me tell you how I understand uh that we don't have free will, the, the okay. way that I would explain it to someone. And I would, yeah. I would say really kind of the, the foundation of it is for me, I am who I am. Like I am always going to be Ryan Nicodemus. And could I, you know, poke Josh in the eye with this pen if I chose to do that? Sure. But like, I would never do that right. because that's who Ryan Nicodemus is unless some, you know, mental condition, uh, uh, clinical mental condition overtook me or a, a bacteria that made me more aggressive rabies or something. But for all intents and purposes, that, if I got rabies, like that actually kind of is a point to we don't have free will because it would force me to. Yeah, I thought this was all about how we don't have free will. <laughs> actually, that's what yeah. Right. It, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> okay. so I, I guess ex- ex- expand on that. Like what, right. how would you explain it to someone to really help make them question 
whether they have free will or not because it's yeah. it's amazing how people get so defensive i'll bring this up no it's a it is and people get livid it's something i almost left out of the book because it's very upsetting to people but it was it was good that i decided to keep it in because i found a new way of talking about it and again it was like my writing helped clarify um how i think about it for myself actually Here, here's what I'll, um, here's how I'll, I'll frame what ryan just said okay. I don't believe I have free will, free free will, but I feel, feel that like I have. have. Oh, yeah, <laughs> right. Okay. That's that's a good way of saying it. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, well, that's why that's why I talk about it as an illusion. It's a very strong illusion that we absolutely all have, even those of us who stopped believing we had it years and years ago. I mean, I I came across this as a child. I remember deba- debating my mom this when I was twelve. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, but it's something that once you think about it, you realize yes. At least in the way that you feel like you have free will, you, you don't. Um, mm. So there's some there's some version that is That's called an libertarian illusion. free will often, oh, right? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it's just well, it's like the the idea that like I I get you know I'm I'm the master of my domain. I make every choice, every decision is mine, and mm-hmm. I I own it sort of thing. Right, yeah. right. Um, so I distinguish in the book um, and always now between conscious will and free will, and free will is more. Um, they're they're different to tear apart, and one is more difficult to do that with than the other. So free will is more difficult to argue against um, than conscious will. And conscious will is the thing that I think is most important for us to challenge, mm. especially when we're talking about consciousness and illusions that get in the way of our understanding consciousness well. Um, so I like to really talk about conscious will, and I think most people can get on board with the idea that conscious will is an illusion. Mm. And so maybe I'll just start there, um, which is Perfect. the idea that consciousness itself is the thing that's making the choice, is the thing that's driving the behavior, is the thing that has the intention. Mm-hmm. Um, so that if I said to you, um, you know, I, in this magical stone I have, I know everything you're going to do and say two seconds before you do or say it, right? Mm -hmm. That would break that experience of conscious will for you. Because even if I said, well, your brain has free will and it's making all these complex decisions based on outside information and it's processing. And so there are choices being made, um, but it's being made by your brain before you're aware of it. And then you become conscious of it, right? Mm -hmm. So so Mm -hmm. there's some version of that that we know is, is happening. Um, and, but what we really strongly feel is that consciousness is required. Me being aware of it, that this me, and then so this is related to the illusion of self, and I talk about them together in the book. So, um, conscious will and the self are two illusions that are that are really the same illusion. And the illusion is to make a decision that's my decision. Um, I need to have this consciousness, and this consciousness is also me and the me i'm pointing to here i'm not thinking is my brain and is thinking of all this processing that's going on in my mm-hmm. brain even though we know that's the case there's a very strong intuition i have a feeling that me is this like single solid entity mm-hmm. that i mean when you start to look for it it, it becomes this strange this strange game that you're yeah. playing and it trips you out but it's still a very strong illusion. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a me that's separate from my brain, that you know, my brain could be delivering me all these um, intentions and wishes, and I might you know, feel tired and be done with this interview, and I'm just, <laughs> wanna, <laughs> my brain is telling me to walk out the door, but then I am overriding that and thinking, no, I'm, I'm going to do this other thing and not follow what my brain is, like me, that there's some me someplace, right? Yeah. Right. 
and this is very related to um, the religious conception of a soul and mm-hmm. all of and which is a very strong intuition yes. that, we, that we really have. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. even the question of it's hard for us to think clearly about whether um, consciousness exists outside of brains, partly because of this question about what happens after death. And we we have this intuition that you could survive your own death, right? Because you're mm-hmm. not really your body. It's it's my body. Mm-hmm. Wherever me is, I have this body, I have this brain, I have these things, but somehow the me is separate from the ex- the external world and, and the, f- the physical world. And so free else. will is connected to, the, so conscious will is connected to that. The, the, the feeling we have is yeah. that I have a self that makes conscious decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and the truth of the matter is, there are, there are many ways this has been studied now um, in neuroscience, but we can see all kinds of decisions um, at the level of the brain before a person is aware they've made the decision. For me, like the, the most, um, the, the biggest point in your book where you talk about this is how the brain, is it binding? Binding, well, is, binding. yeah, that's, so, that's one process. So it's like, yes, you will, like I'll clap my hands and like, Josh is going to see me clapping my hands and hearing, and his brain's going to basically take that input. He's the the brain's going to get the sound, mm-hmm. which comes later than the actual photons of the light. But your brain takes those two things and says, "No, no, this happened. It's so all I'm, one of them. You're experiencing all one event. it as one moment. Right. You experience it as one moment. Right, but it's actually hitting your brain at two different speeds. But your brain essentially has this wonderful way of yeah making you know making things make sense essentially. Yeah. David Eagleman talks about this brilliantly, and um, I think I have a quote from him in my book, but I, I, I discuss his his um, talking about time and how essentially our conscious experience mm-hmm. is always lagging behind the physical world. I love that you threw that and chapter bi- in there. And <laughs> binding is one of the reasons, mm-hmm. right? Because it takes time for our brains to put all of these things together so that we experience it all happening at one time in the present moment. And we're, we're a little late. Our consciousness is always a little late to the party. Mm. So what do you think um, about, about consciousness um, you know, once we die or whatever? Like the consciousness being able to go somewhere else, I, uh, whether it's... Uh, uh, a religious view which seems very similar to me to like the view of like I can upload my consciousness into some cloud somewhere yeah that, seems... that actually makes more sense to me than our soul leaving the body and yeah and I, somewhere. I think functionally it's the same thing right? yeah. I think, yeah. think people are talking about the same concept at least mm. have you seen uh, the black mirror episode USS Callister um, so uh, do you remember that? Uh, remind the, me. Is the it first episode of season the season four. It's the only season I've seen. Oh. But um, there is uh, this guy. Basically, he, he's rather nefariously sort of steals people's consciousness, uploads them into a system so he can sort of play God in a way over oh, their yes. consciousness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And. Uh, does really terrible things to them, like mm-hmm. recreates them in this imaginary world without any sex organs, um, <laughs> and uh, um, but like they're forced, like in perpetuity, to to sort of be living in this this conscious world. So they're con- it is just their consciousness, but they still feel like they have a body. There's still that sense yeah. of I. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on on? It seems I mean, like a great hope. Of, it seems like a great hope for some some people. Um, who's the guy? Yeah. Uh, Kurtz, Kurtzweil. Yeah, Kurtzweil. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. I could take this in so, so many different <laughs> places. The first thing I thought though was that's not so different from the situation we're actually in, right? Mm. I mean, our conscious experiences. We're just completely. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? 
Um, what are you trying to say? Like we're uploaded in, no. in, in our body and like we're, we're just kind of, all right, I'll stop no. talking. I'll let you think of it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of the word, but we're, we're essentially, um, we have no control over the experience that we're having. Mm. We're, ha- we are given mm. the experience we have. We're given the, like I, the, ex- the experience that is me, mm-hmm. right, is came to be in this universe without my conscious will creating it or yeah. bringing it you into didn't existence. You decide to be born. So I don't think right. that there's, there's like, you know, one mad genius who's, who's done all of this, although that's interesting to contemplate, but it's almost like we're not in any different situation. You know, I could get in a car accident and lose a leg and, and the, this person didn't create it in this alternate reality, but I am, why am I forgetting this word? <laughs> it's, I want to say I'm a slave to, but slave is the wrong word. Mm. Um, Servant. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting though. Like the the thought of wh- what you just said, like how consciousness happened to us. We didn't choose to be conscious. Well, it's not. Well, that's true too. But mm-hmm. we didn't choose anything, right? And so, so what we consciousness didn't choose. Anything. What we, you're saying we, we, we don't choose anything ever is essentially what you're saying. Our consciousness is real. So I have a, a chapter in my book called "Along for the Ride," and that is how I see consciousness. And I should also say that those experiments, and we can talk about some of the experiments. They're interesting. There have been more recent ones um, in this area and fMRI, um, where experimenters can see what decision someone will make and when they will make it before mm. the person's aware. Now it's just like a second or so beforehand, right? But yeah, it's about four seconds. But c- couldn't you oh, extrapolate wow. that? I mean, if you were, were able to figure that out. I don't know, with an algorithm. Thank you, Ryan. If you're able to figure that out with an algorithm, couldn't you theoretically predict far into the future then? Um, Theoretically, I guess. I mean, I I don't know. Enough bits of input. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'd have to have an insane amount of, you'd you'd have to be able to collect all this information, which you couldn't possibly collect. Right now, given our Um, our current limitations. Yeah, and it's hard to see how we'll, we'll... (laughs) <laughs> we'll never get beyond. I mean, current limitations is like, those, those are some serious limitations. Right. But the thing I was going to say, actually, is that these experiments are not necessary to prove the point. Um, I think spending enough time in meditation can actually get you to this realization. You can see it. And that that's part of the reason why I became interested in meditation and why, why I continue to do it. Um, I see it as kind of a scientific experiment. It's like the scientific mm. way of exploring consciousness because you're getting closer and closer to the moment by moment experience you're having, which takes away um, some of the illusions that we normally live with because we're not investigating it mm-hmm. to that degree. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit like seeing one of those amazing um, two-dimensional they're like three-dimensional images on a two-dimensional surface that right. are now, I mean, there are tons of YouTube videos now or how to make them yourself, but they're mm. incredible. I'm sure you've seen these mm-hmm. where you just, you know, turn it in one direction under certain light and it looks like there's a Rubik's cube there and right. then you turn it around and it's a flat piece of paper. Right. Um, and so in some ways, just investigating illusions enough, you look at it from enough angles and you realize that it's something different from what you imagined it was. And so um, I think when you pay very close attention to your moment-to-moment experience, you realize that your consciousness is kind of along for the ride. You're mm-hmm. just aware of what's happening. 
So let's talk about one of these experiments. The uh, So tell us about an experiment where, you know, they can tell what you're going to do four minutes in advance. So this this is seconds, not minutes. Oh, four seconds. Sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> We'd be living in a crazy world. <laughs> I know. I was like, I was, I, <laughs> there uh, scientists. I think I just heard it wrong. <laughs> I, I would definitely like trying to figure out the lottery at that point. But four <laughs> right. seconds is a lot. I mean, that's, is. that is a significant amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um so this most recent one was in 2013. I'd have to look up the names of, of the scientists and, and the university. Um, I probably I might have it with me in my notebook, actually, if you want, if you want the information. Cool. Yeah. Um, so they put participants in an fMRI scanner and gave them a choice. They gave them two numbers, and then the, they were to choose whether they subtract or add these two numbers. Okay. And. So they're watching um, a type of clock. They're in an fMRI scanner, so they can't move, but they're watching a clock um, that actually, I haven't seen it, I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I imagine it's similar to the clocks they use in these types of experiments, which is very much like a second hand going around a clock. So you can kind of, you can note the the second at which you make a decision just by watching this second hand go around. So they, at some point, make a conscious decision, okay, I'm gonna add these numbers, Mm -hmm. and they mark where, what, moment in time they made that decision mm-hmm. um, and then they do the math and and that's the experiment and this is run over and over again with with different participants interesting and they can see activity in different areas of the brain so they were able to decipher not just when the person would make the decision um, which they could correctly do but whether they were going to add or subtract mm-hmm. before that moment where the person said okay i'm deciding now well i wonder because the brain has to make that decision like for me to move my finger up and down mm-hmm. it's got to start here before it goes to my finger so i could see where not necessarily though right like if you burn your hand on the stove you're going to move your finger before your brain recognizes no, no. you'd move it before you were aw- consciously aware but the uh, signals still have to go to the brain uh, right your brain has to process it first that's right we're not zombies <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah your disembodied finger would not still react yeah. <laughs> to hot surfaces fair enough yeah, yeah. <laughs> no i i mean i'm just pos- i'm just positing the 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 question of with this experiment what, I mean, to me, it kind of makes sense that the brain, you would be able to see brain signals uh, tell you what to do first, because again, like the message has to come from your brain. Yeah. And then no, it the- makes perfect <clears throat> sense. It just messes with our intuitions because mm. what that means, we can kind of see, we watch the experiment, we say, okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. It is all brain processing, even though we forget that in every moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you go to the implications of that, which is every decision you're going to make today I'm going to know it four seconds before you yeah. know it. Yeah. That goes against your intuitions. Yeah. Even if you can understand it intellectually, yeah, no, you're going to feel like you're in a very different world than the world you used to be living in. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that is pretty crazy. It's so totally counterintuitive. What, what other, um, any other experiments you want to talk about that? Um, I could, I mean, if you want, they're, yeah, they're all yeah, basically yeah. No, the, I, I, the I love this. Like setup. I would love to hear. Yeah. Um, let me see if I can remember the details. There's one from 2011 where there were epilepsy patients. So they often, um, it's amazing to me always that these patients are willing to let themselves be subjects for other experiments, but mm-hmm. they, they, so epilepsy patients sometimes need brain surgery. Um, oh, the split to Im- brain, yeah. uh, Well, there's that, but they, oh, they, okay. they don't need to do that, such a drastic surgery anymore. Um, okay. So, But there are a variety of, of, of um, surgeries that they can do, um, and actually for depression and, and other things as well, where they implant electrodes into the brain. Um, oh, okay. During brain surgery, they have to keep the patient awake. Um, one reason is they 
not all of our brains are exactly the same and they need to know when they're in a certain area of the brain, what that's affecting. They want to make sure they don't damage mm. um, the areas of speech or, you know, like essential parts of this human delicate. being. Yeah. Right. You can't just start moving um, stuff out of the way. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, so like, like, well, this, this, this helped the last person, so we'll put it in the same spot. Like, our, our brains are all different. Yeah. Um, so these patients will often volunteer to have um, scientific experiments run in the in the process of getting this brain surgery because they're there already their brains open which is amazing and the doctors asking them many questions as they move to different areas and they'll they'll stimulate different areas and they can there's um a procedure by which they can put one half of the brain to sleep for for a short time mm. um i think it's called the wada test um okay. to, and that that usually is done just to see which side of the brain um, the person's um, language center is based or commu- uh, speaking center is based. Mm. Um, so for most people, it's in the left hemisphere, but for some people, it's in the right. And so they need to, to test that and make sure. Wow, that is, that's um, cool. So they did one of these um, free will studies. I'm sure that's not what they called it, <laughs> but um, on patients who were undergoing um, surgery for epilepsy. And so recording from parts of the brain and I, I believe they were recording from individual neurons but I could I could be wrong about that piece um, I'm not gonna get all the details right because I haven't looked at it most <laughs> more, recently enough but I believe it was Sorry. I believe it was motor movements mm. um, and the reason they did this study in 2013 that I was talking about with the addition and subtraction is because there'd been a lot of um, debate about whether, controlling and making decisions about motor movements actually applies to more complex decision making, which is, involves many parts of the brain. And, mm. and we intuitively feel, and I think correctly feel, that it's a different type of decision to, to move your hand versus um, whether you're going to start a podcast. You know, right, <laughs> like Those right. are very different types of conscious decisions to make. Mm-hmm. Um, so the earlier studies had been done by a... Um, a scientist called Le- Benjamin LeBay, or LeBet, I'm never quite sure how to pronounce his name. And, and, and these studies are famous, but they were very controversial, partly because they were about motor movements. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was using EEG to detect signals in the brain. Um, so this was slightly controversial. So this was a follow-up for that, and this was motor movement. Um, it, it had to be moving a finger, moving a hand, so, some very simple motor movement where the person decided, watching some type of clock, now I'm going to move my finger. Mm. And they were able to de- to replicate the findings of Libet in this, and actually having electrodes in the brain that are recording um, information. So it's now been done three ways. It's done, been done through EEG, um, through during this uh, brain surgery where there are electrodes mm-hmm. being implanted in the brain, and then fMRI. Yeah, th- this reminds me of the split brain uh, experiment, or mm-hmm. yeah, that you talk about in your book where uh, people who had epilepsy, they would split the brain because that would kind of help cut off these connections that would uh, in turn um, prevent them from having as many seizures. Yeah, well, prevent it from being a grand mal, grand mal seizure, which is um, the most dangerous kind of seizure. And mm. it's when the electrical storm just spreads um, to the entire brain. And so, yeah, they're so able to br- confine it to one side of the brain. What's crazy about that experiment, though, is, yes, like they'll split the brain. And then, like, maybe you show, and if, correct me where I'm wrong, because I'm, like, totally paraphrasing here, but, like, you show some, you know, you cover up your your uh, right eye, and you show someone a hammer. And then you're like, hey, what is this a picture of? And if, you're, uh, if your left brain is the one that processes what that is, auditory, you know, through speech, you would say, I don't know what it is. 
but you could say, all right, here are some objects on the table, pick out what I'm the picture I'm showing you. And then you might not be able to say, oh, I know it's a hammer, but you could reach down and pick up the hammer. Yeah. So one side of your brain no has information that the other side doesn't have. So right. one side of your brain knows it was a hammer that mm-hmm. it saw and the other side of the brain didn't see a hammer. Yeah. Um so it's almost like conjoined twins. Yeah, it's like there are um, yeah. it, it, it is like two brains yeah. in, in some ways. There are two selves in a way and it starts to get into this idea of yeah. of self and um the illusion of, of self which I've only been able to glimpse through meditation. Mm-hmm. Have you ever done ketamine? No, I haven't done ketamine. Uh, it's one of the few, <laughs> few psychedelics I haven't tried. Uh, my doctor prescribed it recently. I um, uh, so like I, in a therapeutic yeah, session, yeah, yeah. like in a microdosing. Okay. Yeah, uh, oh, yeah, it's certainly different. not microdosing. It's, I mean, I thought it was at first. Um, yeah. Well, Josh has. I've known him since we were fat little fifth graders. He's never had a sip of alcohol. Right. I yeah, mean, the I, dude is like totally so. Yeah, what, but psychedelics are a completely different type of true. Thing. Right. But I've never done anything sort of recreationally, and um. But wait, is this? I mean, I know so ketamine's used different ways, especially right now. It's being used in all this research. But. Yeah, I'll, I'll explain why. why uh, so uh, last September, Ryan and I went to Brazil, and I got a really bad about food poisoning and my gut has not been the same the last 10 months and it's it's caused some pretty bad depression i've never experienced mm. depression in my life before ever um and i mean i've been you know sad or whatever like yeah, I'm, I'm not yeah. a, a robot but like um i've i've just experienced a intense depression the last uh nine ten months and going through that um you know, they've done several studies on on ketamine now yeah and uh so dr um, one of my doctors has has tried. You know, it's uh, it's a ketamine drip. Basically, you go and sit on a table for an hour, and right. they it's an IV. Right. And uh, he's so fun to watch afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, someone else has to drive you home. Yeah. And I'll tell you that is there therapy that's being con- talk therapy that's happening at the same time, or you just no, sit and you, receive you, the you, medication? Yeah, you just receive the medication, yeah. and it has to do something with the neural pathways. Like, it does it interrupt them, or does it? F- finished connections like i don't know the science behind it but i do know that you totally lose the sense of self and you talk about that in your book uh, with with ketamine i think psilocybin and and some other things and Mm -hmm. and it's i finally understood like i said in meditation i've had glimpses Mm -hmm. of it Mm -hmm. but with under ketamine you're like oh yeah yeah, of course there's no self like it's like it's so self-evident in in the moment Mm -hmm. yeah um but it also like uh i feel this sense of depersonalization in a way i don't know if, if that makes sense yeah well depersonalization is often used in a negative context but i don't think that's what you mean no so, no I, I mean it in a but yes it can be this incredibly euphoric positive experience of of like oneness yeah. yes of oneness but not oneness with myself no sorry oneness with the universe right. oneness of, of all that is yeah, mm-hmm. and, yeah and it almost yeah you start using terms that uh sound you know, extremely woo woo i feel like we should eat mushrooms <laughs> before this podcast <laughs> uh yeah i mean ryan ryan's my dynamic like ryan is is the hippie and i'm the yuppie of of the yeah. duo <laughs> and so like um you know ryan has tried many of these uh yeah. therapies yeah and um um, well, I guess what I found is like it's what 
you I won't say searching for a meditation, but what you glimpse from time to time yeah. is that that okay, there 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 isn't the self the way that I that I perceive the self. In fact, in the book, you you're often putting "I" in quotes, which is yeah. is an ingenious way to do it because it is the "I." It's how I think of myself. It's the illusion, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. No, and there are many ways to break through that illusion, and and psychedelics are one way, and meditation is another. But when you have an illusion, you can break through it, and there are various ways of doing that. But yeah, yeah. And so, mm-hmm. um, I, by the way, I, it's also I think uh, responsible to point out the downsides to to any of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, that you know, obviously, you don't want to just haphazard. You know, well, I'm just gonna take a handful of mushrooms, right. and now I'm gonna lose myself. I'm gonna put on Dark Side of the Moon and <laughs> have a blast. Uh, no, uh, well, and all of the um, all of the research that's being done with psychedelics. The therapeutic um, environment is actually very important for getting mm. the effects that we're seeing. So for PTSD and treatment-resistant depression, um, you will not get the same results if you just take this stuff recre- recreationally with your right. friends. Although you can you can have you know profound experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of a crapshoot, though. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Or more of a crapshoot. I guess it's it's always a crapshoot, but but the environment when it's conducive not, not from the research that i've seen it's pretty interesting so so what you're saying is as long as the the environment created is conducive for uh the medicinal use of these like it's it's generally for helping the person over generally a pretty awesome experience depression. yeah um well the 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 results are are kind of not surprising i guess but very hopeful and they're like you know in the 80 to 90 percent um effective effectiveness rate mm-hmm. but the thing that is almost more important is it doesn't seem to have any, it doesn't make anyone worse. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. not dangerous that's, to do yeah. in a certain that, context, a in a certain setting when everything is being administered by professionals. You've, yes. Yeah. You've got someone there who, yeah, knows what they're doing. And again, it's not just eating a handful of acid and putting on dark side of the moon and yeah, hoping so, to get I mean, good as results. Far, as far as I know, <laughs> the worst thing that happens in those studies is a person is not helped, um, but the vast majority of people are, are right. helped. Yeah. Sean, I'll awesome. send you a link to a Harvard study that they did on uh, ketamine recently. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is one my doctor sent to me. And um, yeah, it, 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 rare side effects sort of thing. I mean, I'm, I think they're, they're very careful in there to say, well, there's always side effects in everything you do, but but there didn't seem to be any, um, I guess, traumatic responses to it. Yeah. Uh, however, there can be to even even to meditation. I mean, uh, there yes. are pe- people who experience yes. uh, uh, breakdowns instead of breakthroughs yes. with respect to to meditation. Yeah. So even then, it's uh, meditate responsibly. <laughs> <laughs> we we found the uh, the title for this episode, right. Sean. <laughs> well, speaking of meditation, let's talk about meditation for kids. So yeah. so on the Waking Up app, there are I haven't used them yet, but I've been I'm I'm thinking of it because Ella. Uh, just turned six mm-hmm. and I've, I've read your book to her quite a few nights uh, I wonder it's a, it's a great book I'll hold it up here for the YouTube audience another beautiful cover yes indeed um, so I've I've read your book to her I've got your uh, mindful games activity cards which I've not played with her yet um, I should say these are based on Susan Kaiser Greenland's work okay uh, yeah, we yeah collaborated uh, on this project together but it's really 55 fun ways to share mindfulness with kids and teens is six too young i know you've taught six-year-olds before but i can't so to give you some context ella for the first three years of her life was trying out for isis she's (laughs) 
<laughs> she was audition, like many, sending in audition tapes. Like many many three-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> she tried to behead me more than once. <laughs> and um, uh, but since turning since turning three, so over the last three years, she has has calmed down quite a bit, and uh, uh, she has one of those gravity blankets. She calls it her Zen blanket. Uh, is uh, like a weighted blanket? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's yeah. like a heavy yeah. blanket. And she yeah. calls it her Zen That's blanket. Yeah. Um, she's very tactile. Mm-hmm. Um, she's bright. Um, uh, but I'm wondering whether or not she has the capacity to meditate. Yet. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So now I have all of my guided meditations and lessons for children on our waking up app. Mm-hmm. And you can, tr- you, I would just say, and what I always say is just try it. And everyone is different. Every child is different. It is definitely tricky getting your own children interested in, I would say, anything you're interested in. <laughs> they, they tend to resist. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been, uh, I'm, I'm constantly navigating this with, with my own kids. Mm. Um, but luckily for you, my meditations are in my voice and not, <laughs> not yours. <laughs> so um, you might just try it. Yeah. And I think... Some kids will resonate more doing it in like in more of a playful game type way. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of young kids, and I say this all the time, they blow me away when I teach, when I go to my classes. Um, and I've been teaching younger and younger children, and I just this year taught the youngest group of children I've ever taught. They were like four and a half to six. Oh, wow. Um, but six was the oldest. And in a, it was a preschool class. And I went into it with no, with low expectations, I should say. I really didn't think they would get much out of it, but I thought it was wonderful that this preschool wants to have me come in mm-hmm. and it will definitely help lay the groundwork and the, the um, concepts and there are things we can talk about that will help them if they ever become interested in meditation. Um, I would say many of them, at least five of them in this class, absolutely had an experience of meditating um, and were able to do it. and. In general, kids learn much more easily than adults do. There was a story in the book, I, be- I think it was in your yeah. book, wasn't it? Where, where there was a kid who raised their hand after a meditation oh, yeah. session. Had this yeah. very profound moment. Yeah. 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 What was, and do, they, do you this remember, happens all the time. It's yeah. really interesting to Do you hear. remember the quote in the book? The, um, yeah, I know who you're talking about. The conscious, um, it's like. It, something it, about how the moment. Oh, the present moment. It's always the present moment, but the present moment doesn't exist. Yeah. That, yeah. That, yeah. If that's not it, it's very similar to yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. It was like this six-year-old sort of profundity. Oh, what's the... Uh, I remember David Lynch. But it's, but it's not. But it's profundity. I mean, that's the same profundity that adults get, right? You, no. no I, I, what I'm saying is that, that sometimes kids ha- are, have these moments of profundity that, that are far more profound than anything that I, I could think right. of. There's yeah. a, a David Lynch story. He, he was talking about two of his nephews. One was uh, two years old, one was six years old, and he overheard them playing at like a Thanksgiving dinner or something. And the six-year-old said to the two-year-old, "Can you remind me what uh, remind me what God looks like? I'm beginning to forget." <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> and it's like we're, we're, we're then you just drop the mic and yeah, walk away from the table. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, uh, yeah, it's it's this language that that. that they're using whatever God represents to that six-year-old or to the two-year-old, but like I'm beginning <laughs> to forget, and yeah, uh, yeah it's just like that. There are these moments profound where if like I said that to Ryan, you'd just be like, "What? What are you like, talking about? Right? What, what does that even What does that even mean?" Mm. We've got a few more questions here. I'd like to finish up with uh, 
Krista actually had a voicemail, but I uh, podcast Sean put it into a, a pithy quick question here. How do I halt my mind's obsession with purging stuff? Mm. Now, we talked about OCD mm. earlier, yeah. right? And so even OCD being a giant spectrum, there are hoarders have a, a, a type of OCD. Right. But there's another condition called Spartanism which is people often think of minimalism as Spartanism, like you compulsively have to get rid of everything, uh-huh. you can't own uh-huh. anything, uh-huh. and you everything freaks you out, so you must like purge it immediately. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think quite often what happens is we trade one obsession for another, and that, right. that's not necessarily healthy right. either. And I think part of it has to do, when we talk about meditation, we're really talking about, at least to a great extent, noticing right? Mm-hmm. Noticing the yeah. thoughts, the feelings, whatever, mm-hmm. and allowing them to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with the purging can become addictive mm-hmm. in a way. Well, because you feel you feel a little bit of weight lifted. I mean, I, I know right. that when I like had that packing party and got rid of, you know, 80% of my stuff, there was this huge sense of relief, like, oh, wow, like all those boxes that were just moving with me from apartment to apartment to my home, I, f- I don't have to worry about what's in those boxes anymore. I can just I can just like let that go, and and in a sense, like that relief can become addicting. I think right, and I don't think you get the same value from letting go of 80 percent of your stuff over and over and right. over. Yeah. In fact, that begins to extract value from you. Mm-hmm. Um, the same way, like my daughter has a a toy bin, right, and she gets immense value from the toys that she owns, but she wouldn't get. 10 times the value she had 10 times more no. boxes the opposite is probably true absolutely it, it would it would be overwhelming but you would also do that if it becomes infinitesimally small and right. like well i'm going to take away this one box now and now you just have one toy and now i'm going to break your toy in half and you have half a toy that is deprivation. And, and for me, uh, mindfulness or minimalism or noticing is not about deprivation. Mm-hmm. And so I think the question we need to ask ourselves when it comes to this is, like, am I depriving myself? And I think that's okay in, for temporary periods of time. If you temporarily deprive yourself of something, that tells you whether or not it adds value to your life. Mm-hmm. But if you do it long term, you become an ascetic. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's not what we're what we're trying to communicate I think there's here. also Absolutely. an element there i mean this is just based on my own intuitions but there there's an element there of really having a strong and negative reaction to things mm-hmm. i mean and, and i see it kind of in the context of ocd so that you need things to be so organized and so clear and so free of mess or anything you know i i think and I, it's possible that I, I kind of got that from from the person's question. Was this this is a question that came yeah, in Krista. on social yeah. media? Yeah. Um, and this may or may not be true of what she's experiencing, but I think there's something to be aware of in that because the being bothered by things or things that seem to be in a mess or not mm-hmm. ordered in exactly the way that you feel like now you can. <laughs> And rest because yeah. you know um, it, it's kind of like a symptom of something yes deeper yes yeah I find this yeah. too I will trade my obsessions like um, I was walking around the block the other night uh, Bex and I my wife will do like a walk around the block at night and sometimes I'd get like a little obsessive flare up I'm far more obsessive than I am compulsive but sometimes that obsession leads to compulsion I'm, I'm walking around the block I'm noticing like weeds growing up out of the sidewalk yeah. and I'm like I feel like the need to like 
I should go pluck that. Yeah. <laughs> like, like as it, as though I'm going to make everything in the world perfect if I just remove these few weeds. <laughs> feels so the, much better. Right. But yeah, that question reminded me of that a little bit. That if you if you're becoming obsessed with getting rid of things, there's some, it's a bit of like the plucking the weeds out of the <laughs> sides of the sidewalk. Yeah. yeah. Like you're trying to clean up something that can't be cleaned up by getting rid of stuff. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so so I often ask you, uh, uh, this thing in my life, does this serve a purpose or bring me joy? But I think it can also be said about uh, an obsession there as we mentioned earlier there's a healthy level of obsession where it's like okay i am dissatisfied with this really cluttered kitchen cabinet or whatever okay mm-hmm. clean it and then and then move on from it mm-hmm. um and i think it maybe it's important also to, to recognize what am i moving on to because otherwise i'm just going to be stuck digging in the weeds well yeah. an important question can also be in those moments can i be okay if i leave it for two more days you know yeah. like i know i want to clear this out or I need to give these things away but if there's a sense of I can't be okay until I clean this up there's something else happening yeah um yeah absolutely absolutely Jake says how has your study of consciousness affected your worldview and your priorities in life have you changed your priorities based on huge question and I'm not sure I have a good or interesting answer at least I'll Um, I'll tell you what it helps me do is helps me to like not take things so seriously honestly like for me realizing like mm. you know, like I'll, I'll i get these like really anxious feelings sometimes for no mm. reason uh-huh. but then that causes me to be like oh there must be something i should be anxious about right now yeah. what is it yeah and, I'll, and i'm really good at finding stuff too yeah but when i get those feelings i you know as i've gotten older i realize and, and through understanding because i was raised like super religious mm. to like now i'm not really religious at all mm-hmm and definitely, um, I mean, I'm still a little woo-woo-y, I guess, but not nearly as much as what I was, you know, b- back in my early 20s. But but because of understanding, you know, the the, the scientific uh, viewpoint from, you know, looking at consciousness or looking at free will, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, for me, it just helps me to not take things as mm-hmm. seriously. It doesn't mean that, yeah. you know, I'm going to live on the street. I mean, you know, and like, no, I think that's true and ignore too, all though. my priorities, yeah. but yeah, but yeah, I, I actually appreciate having the, like your book consciousness totally helped me again, like just take that serious yeah. level and take it down a notch. Well, and I think that is, that's partly the experience of awe. And that is, I mean, that, that was the only thing I could really think of an answer to that question. Um, I'm I'm not a religious person, haven't ever been a religious person, but I consider my, I'm very careful about using this word, but I always have considered myself to be very spiritual. And part of that mm-hmm. um, living with that spiritual component is a lot of that comes to me actually from science and from this experience of awe. Um, so yes, I think it, it does, it, it definitely gives me that um, I don't know. Is that answering the question? <laughs> uh, it's fascinating because I, I I don't think of myself as even a spiritual person. Uh, mm-hmm. If anything, I'm more religious than I am spiritual because mm-hmm. I, I I actually all I really mean by that is like I, I appreciate ritual. Well, talk about a word mm. that people use a zillion different ways. I mean, we may not yeah. even uh, all right. three of us be using the word the same way. Yeah, but there, it's go ahead. I think the way you use the the word is like to mean numinous or, or, or something like that. Um, I actually, it's funny. I was working, I was thinking about this recently because of all these conversations I'm having. Um, and I, also some months ago, um, there's a philosopher, Thomas Metzinger, who's, who's wonderful, um, who's recently become a friend. And he wrote a piece that he sent to me that I actually posted on my website that I think is great. Um, 
and I'm forgetting the title of it, but it's something to do with intellectual honesty, spirituality and intellectual honesty. Okay. And he gives, it's fantastic. Um, And he gives the, this definition, I actually have it in my notes if, if you want the actual, (laughs) the actual wording. Um, But he says he thinks of spirituality or he, he declares that spirituality is not the opposite of science. Oh, shoot. I'm not going to get it right. Sorry. <laughs> no. Is the, he declares that spirituality is the opposite of religion. Mm. That's what he says. Mm. And he describes it kind of in a scientific context um, and an ethical context, but really a search for truth. That at its core, it's a search for truth. Mm. Um, not belief, but for truth. And he, he gives a beautiful explanation for how, how he arrives at this. But I realized myself as I was thinking, what do I mean by spiritual? And what, what do I think of when when um, I, I, I value spirituality? And for me, it's similar to what he's talking about. But I, I kind of came up with this description of um, a state of staring into the unknown um, while seeking truth and experiencing an intimate connection to the universe at large. Mm. It's like these three components of facing the unknown, wanting, looking for truth, um, and uh, there's there's a component of feeling connected that you're, you, we are in fact a part of this universe, what, yeah. whatever is going on at a fundamental level, and so experiencing that connection within the context of not having all the answers mm. and wondering. I think the thing that I I appreciate about religion is the ritual. Some of my my closest friends are are like pastors and like just people I grew up with. And ritual is very important for children, especially I think Mm -hmm. actually. But yeah, and um, I I think you know to a great extent we've we've lost quite a bit of of ritual, especially as we've commoditized and turned everything, we've turned love into a transaction even. Diamonds are forever. And, and, uh, we, we, we've, we've commodified essentially everything. And in doing so, we've lost a sense of, of community. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Deep connection to each other. Mm. We've replaced, uh, our, you know, if, uh, we just had an earthquake here recently. And like, if your house were to fall down you've you we've commoditized that right because like well i'll just write i've got i write a check every month to an insurance company and they replace it whereas yeah. before it was like your house fell down well the community comes together right. and helps you rebuild the house i'm not sure that was better <laughs> i do you know i'm not I know, saying I know, it's, I, I know your point I, I totally get your point I, I, i'm just i'm teasing you <laughs> yeah. but yeah no there was more more no, meaning I, for community the, uh, yeah speaking no, of, like I, we were talking no, about dreams right. we were talking about dreams i had this dream last night tell me if this is a term that i made up or if like i tweezes from somewhere i think freud would say you want to have sex with your father <laughs> post-industrial <laughs> angst uh, yes have you have I, you ever heard i've never heard that term but i don't it sounds i woke up and it, it sounds was, like an essay title it's i woke up and it was post-industrial teenage angst because the dream i was having was about i don't even know if it was my brother or sister but they were like wrapped up in twitter and like in my mm. i don't know why this popped up but i woke up thinking post-industrial teenage angst mm. but then i was like it doesn't have to be limited to teenagers like no. post-industrial angst but i think that's what yeah. you're i mean what i'm thinking of is post-industrial angst adds to the point of like why we are losing this community yeah. Yeah. well chris ryan has a book coming out called civilized to death mm. and um you know the the thesis of that is like we've we've become so civilized that we're no longer civilized. Like yeah. it's, 
it's a continuum, right? Yeah. There's there's probably balance. Like, yeah. of course, I don't want to go back to hunter gatherers and right. and everyone fearing for their life around every <laughs> every corner. No, but we've lost something. We we definitely along have. The way. And I think I think you're right that religion has always provided things that are extremely important. And this is something I think a lot about because I I didn't grow up religious and it's it's you know I, I'm mostly focused on the ways in which it, it divides people just given given my work. But all of these things that it's provided I think are extremely important and I'm more and more aware of this as my as I have kids and you know raising them in the world. Um, ritual, rites of passage, celebrations, all of those things are incredibly important and are moments for us to be connected. Um, and to share our lives with each other, and it's it's hard to find. Yeah, I find that I don't have the same beliefs as a lot of my religious friends, but I have very similar values. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it yeah. actually it makes me it makes me actually want to attend like a church service, yeah. not because I want to like, well, I want to affirm their beliefs, but yeah. because. I feel like there is a a sense of community that uh, not even just sense of community. I feel like I have a good sense of community. I I lack the communal rituals Absolutely. In, in life. Uh, this is the most ritual thing that I have in my life is every Tuesday we <laughs> yeah. come in here and we Well, no, but I was going to say even just that like meeting every Sunday or whatever day it is, like having a weekly um intention-based place to meet and and reconnect with what you care about, to recenter yourself, to talk about ethical questions to talk about big things you're facing in your life to have someone wise stand up and speak to everyone and get everyone kind of on the same page about remembering what our values are and it's why religion um, works so well it's for all those reasons it's like you've got a group of people who are genuinely looking out for each other's interests and you have the same beliefs and you're you have those rituals and i mean if i had a better answer to religion i'd give it but like you know when it comes to I think we do have to get there, though. I, I think know, there's do, a way to have all I, of this without. Yeah, I don't think we're there yet, but we're we're kind of we're kind of getting there. I, I think I think the problem, Ryan, is when when the beliefs trump the values, and so yeah. like where it's like, oh, I believe gay people shouldn't right. get married. And I like, like this community more than I like my values. So uh, yeah, it's almost like yeah, yeah. And so so there are there are times where where I, I, I we don't want our beliefs to trample our our values I, mm-hmm. I think the beliefs are are the values are the destination and the beliefs are the path to, to get there the Ryan and I have different beliefs uh, we have different political beliefs we have different religious beliefs but uh, I think we 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 just use different paths to get to the same destination ultimately mm-hmm. uh, and that destination for us is like well what does it mean to live a meaningful life do you have an answer to that <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're writing a book about consciousness. So, Annika, what's the secret to life? <laughs> uh, but, but, but to you, I, actually, I think yeah. it's a good place to to end up here. Is what it, what does it mean to live a meaningful life for you? Mm. Life's most difficult question. Yeah. I'm not prepared for this question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I do think it's all the things we're talking about. I think um, it's constantly questioning and staying curious. And I mean, obviously, there are these like human components of being connected. And um, honesty is something that I think is essential, actually, to almost every value I have. Honesty is at the core of all of that. And that was part of the reason why I wrote my children's book. Mm. Um, It's about helping parents, telling parents it's okay to say, I don't know to your child and to Mm. really just be honest about the limits of our knowledge. Um, That's helped me a lot. Just just. Uh, it's confusing at first to Ella because you know, I'm this godlike figure who's supposed to know everything. And it's like, what do you mean you don't know? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
No, but I think my uh, intuition says you should know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, and we definitely, I mean, talk about cultural values. We are culture influencing our our thinking. We definitely live in a culture that tells us that not knowing the answer is either scary or shameful. Yes. Um, And this was my small attempt to shift that as much as as possible because to me it's the opposite. It's it is. it is a source of curiosity and of wonder. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it connects all of us because the mystery, the things that none of us have the answer to compl- totally connect all of us. We can mm-hmm. all be connected over, you know, looking in awe at something that we don't have the answer to or don't yet have the answer to. Yeah, I love that. And I, I love the work you're doing, like, especially with a book like this children's book. Um, I, again, I was raised religious and part of who I am is because of that very strict upbringing mm-hmm. and those values that I was taught that, you know, I was finally able to separate the values from beliefs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I question a lot, like, you know, when, when Mariah and I have children, my wife and I, it's like, I want to, them to have those values, but there's no way in hell I'd bring them to church right. to get those values. No, but I'm sure I have a feeling our values are identical and, I'm here to say you can do that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, that's, that's why. That's why I just want to thank um, you for the work. I'm also a, it's, a it's very important. strict mom, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I mean, all of those values. It's interesting to have not grown up with religion because that's a very unusual thing um, to have grown. I mean, that's yeah. increasingly less. Um, and you're still unusual, a good mother. You're, yeah, you st- your kids are getting along fine, and yeah, it's it, it, you didn't have to go to church in order to right. Yeah, to get there. Yeah, and and, and again, we're not. I'm not bashing. Yeah. Church, it's just for me. It's not something that I would want to introduce to my kids. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, anyone out there who's going to church, like, great, keep doing that. It's working for you. But it is a way. It's not necessarily the way. Right. Yeah. Um, but historically, it's been the only place yeah. we have to yeah. um, to cherish these values and to bring these values to the next generation. So I think it's an important conversation to have how to do that Um outside of the context of religion. Yeah, yeah I think for the longest absolutely. time it was the the only place where the answers were. And yeah. it's understandable if you're living it's totally in understandable. Romania in the 1500s and you walk into this giant place that you and you're starving to death yeah. and all of a sudden they're like, yeah, and we'll they're like, here's food and clothes. Have a seat. Of course, like the yeah. only explanation for this is some higher power that I can't possibly understand. Yeah. And then these people apparently have the answers whereas of course it's far more complex than that i'll tell you i still do lean on like a, a higher power side but it's and i have to be honest with myself and say like it's the easy way out for me a lot of the times mm. to look at it and be like oh well there's a, everything happens for a reason mm. <laughs> there's a plan for it all <laughs> so it's like so i almost use it as uh as a crutch a little bit mm-hmm. um i'm not you know, I'm not. I'm not saying that that's a negative thing that I have in my life, but I, I do find myself when I lean towards a higher power, it's because of things that I can't explain, and it's just easier for me to be like, oh, well, that I wasn't responsible for that. Someone else was responsible. I think for that. there's actually a way to do that, though, in a with a slightly different framing, and especially without the framing okay. of there's a reason because that <laughs> <laughs> that that puts us in a stance. I think it's a it's an unhealthy stance towards ourselves and towards people who are uh, suffering I, I think it certainly <laughs> can most of the time yes absolutely yeah um i do i agree with that uh, but there's i think that i i get the benefit of it and i think there are other ways to kind of have that framing for yourself that's mm-hmm. just slightly different that can give you the same benefit yeah yeah it's not you know it's not a crutch in the sense that 
I just write in my journal because God said so. And then like I go to bed at night, but it is something that like, you know, there's crazy things that happen or, yeah, you know, um, I'll meet someone and I'm like, God, like, it's almost like we were destined to meet each other, you know? And, um, yeah, it's uh, the other thing too. I'll say, this is so fun to believe. <laughs> I know Santa Claus isn't real, but God, it is fun to believe in that story. Well, I hope there's no eight-year-old listening to this this <laughs> podcast. My daughter has never believed in Santa Claus. Mine either, but she loves to pretend. We pretend that, that, that's right. Exactly, it's what fun we do. to pretend. Yeah, yeah, it is fun and to I pretend. Didn't, I did was not the one to spoil it for her. She figured it out on her own, but she kept saying, "Can we still pretend?" And I love it. Yeah, that's yeah. Great. But she, ultimately, that might be so. Might be a reason why I still lean towards that is because. It's fun to pretend. Yeah. Well, pretend. when Ella <laughs> Ella argued with me about, well, I, I was trying to explain to her that Santa Claus is not real, but it's a fun story to pretend. And she goes, no, I saw him at the mall. <laughs> I like, saw him at the Missoula <laughs> Mall in I'm Montana. Like, well, why the hell is your mom taking you to the mall? <laughs> you little conformist. <laughs> Annika Harris, thank you so much for being here today. You're I'm awesome. Really, Thanks so much. I, I want to acknowledge you for creating something really meaningful. Uh, in more ways than one. I want to encourage folks to think of your website. It's AnnikaHarris.com, yes. right? They can check out your book, Conscious. Uh, read it. You can read it in like an hour or two. Yeah. Or if you're as slow a reader as me and you like to go back and underline <laughs> passages and stuff, yeah. it's about three hours. Or I had me. to like reread paragraphs. I'm like, what am I reading? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really it good. Great. But you, you, you've you created something meaningful that's also palatable, understandable, digestible, and I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. Thank you. You also wrote uh, a really great children's book. I wonder, I encourage folks to check that out. And then Mindful Games, the activity cards, I am going to check this out with, uh, with Ella as well. But thank you so much for joining us yeah. today. Yeah, thank you very, me. very much. All right, y'all. Love people and use things. We'll see you next time. The Minimalists. <laughs>